This is a RomyCast. This podcast was recorded in January of 2022. One, two, three, four. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? Oh, that's all right. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we were both of a do what you want to do, do what you want to do. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. Uh, My guest in this episode is once again Barry Keane, who has been on the music scene in Canada since the 1970s, and he has been on the drum kit for the Gordon Lightfoot Band for over 40 years. This episode is part two of our conversation about the Beatles' second album, with the Beatles. Uh, We're going to be talking about side two of the record. If you haven't heard us talking about side one, then go and listen to that episode first and then come back and listen to this one. Uh, That's with the Beatles, which in Canada came out as Beatlemania with the Beatles. And for many Canadians, it was in fact the first Beatles album. But in the catalog, it's the second coming after Please Please Me. That's with the Beatles. Uh, The website for this podcast, where you can find that first episode of Barry and I talking about the album, Side One, is romicast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com, romicast.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far in this series. This is the 18th episode of Series 2, You can find the first 17 episodes of this series as well as all 15 episodes of Series 1. They are all right there for your dining and dancing and podcast listening pleasure, romicast.com. If you see fit while you're there, please make a donation to support keeping the podcast commercial-free. Any donation, much appreciated. And your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of the show, web hosting, advertising, some equipment costs. I do this as a hobby, and it's a labor of love for me. I really enjoy it. But if you enjoy the work that goes into this podcast and listening to it, then please consider a donation to support that work and this podcast. Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode. Not that much if you can afford it. Just go to the website, click on the donate button if you'd like to help out. And along those lines, a big shout out and thanks to Terry Skubik and Rick Johnson for their recent donation. Uh, Terry and Rick sent along a message with their donation. It said, uh, love the first episode with Barry Keane. We're both big Gordon Lightfoot fans and have seen him play live several times. It was great to hear Barry talking about music that he enjoys so much. Maybe you could get Gordon Lightfoot on one time. 
on not holding my breath on that one, but you never know. Uh, thanks to Terry and Rick for their donation. Really appreciate it. If you'd like to help out, make a donation. I'll give you a shout out as well or not. You can do it anonymously. Whichever the case, just visit the website, romicast.com. And also, if you don't already, please subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, leave a positive review or rating. Thanks for that. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram. The handle on both channels is Romanuk Paul. There's also a Facebook group page. Just do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you'll find it. Barry Keane has had a major presence in the Canadian music industry for a long, long time. He started off as an aspiring drummer in the late 60s, got into the record business in the early 70s, worked as an A&R guy and a producer, and he was on that path towards being a record executive. But then fate came a-knocking, and he gravitated back to being a full-time drummer, his first love, and he eventually found a chair at the drum kit with one of the great singer-songwriters of his era, Gordon Lightfoot. When he wasn't touring or recording with Lightfoot, Barry worked as a session drummer. He's played on countless commercials and also played on albums with artists as diverse as Anne Murray, The Northern Pikes, Bachman Turner Overdrive, Shania Twain, Murray McLaughlin, on and on. He's played on hundreds of records. Uh, I met Barry when I was working as a hockey play-by-play broadcaster. Uh, he was introduced to me by a colleague after I'd done a Toronto Maple Leafs game in Tampa and we were in the hotel bar and my colleagues said something along the lines of hey this is Barry he's a musician he's in town here touring got tickets to uh, the Leafs game and then uh, my colleague was off it was Christine Simpson she was gone so uh, I started making small talk with Barry and we chatted for a while uh, and then it suddenly struck me Barry Barry musician drummer I know this guy it's is it Barry Keene And then I said, hey, are you Barry (laughs) Keene? He was, and we've remained in touch over the years. He's a great guy. Barry, great to have you back. Thank you very much uh, as we get set to dig into side two. Uh, One of your favorite Beatles albums, I know, and I am sure, reflecting on your comments in side one, we will learn a little more about the album from uh, your musician's eye view. Just recently, I've learned uh, so much more, and thank you for uh, being the catalyst for this. Hey, uh, my pleasure. Uh, so before we dig into side two, uh, I just want to get get you to tell me a little story. So you started, from what I've read, your musical journey as a kid, as a guitarist. Why did you leave the guitar and move to the drums? Uh, simple. We're all glad you did, by the way. Oh, but, well, thank you. Know, but... <laughs> no, I think I was... My parents used to uh, go for spring around spring break to Florida every year where I would go get burned like a lobster and, <laughs> as a kid. I think I, it was somewhere around the age of 10. We went to see, at the Dade County Convention Center, Ricky Nelson. And uh, again, I had like a Dave Clark moment when I was 10. I looked up at Ricky Nelson and I said, I want to be Ricky Nelson. So what does he do? He sings and plays the guitar. So in order to be Ricky Nelson, I needed to learn how to play the guitar. My parents, again, you know, God bless them. They got me guitar lessons. 
and I was maybe three or four lessons into it. And again, a vivid memory of sitting in a room with a guitar teacher who didn't smell that good. <laughs> and with a Mel Bay book in front of me, playing... And me thinking, this isn't anywhere close to Ricky Nelson. Like this, like... Home, home on the range, like really, and it just my interest level in playing the guitar, it just vanished like immediately. I just said, "I'm not doing this, man. This I I don't see I don't see me becoming Ricky Nelson anytime soon. So take a pass." All right, so first cut side two, and this guy was no Ricky Nelson either, but boy could he play. A great cover of a great Chuck Berry song, Roll Over Beethoven. They had the uh, they had the brains to slow it down just a little from the Chuck Berry version. Chuck Berry's version for me is just a little bit frantic. I mean, it's really energetic. Uh, for me, the Beatles found the right tempo, and the part the part of it, the part that works almost better than George's guitar part and and the song and everything else, quarter note claps. And kind of the cowbell part that you would hear in uh, uh, Working for the Weekend, Lover Boy, or mm -hmm. uh, Mississippi Queen, uh, Mountain, quarter notes. Just, and that is the driving force through this. And later on, you would hear other records. I'm not sure which came first, but uh, Randy and the Rainbows with Denise. Oh, Denise Doobie-Doo with the quarter note claps. Uh, the reflections, just like Romeo and Juliet, quarter note claps. To me, it was such a, a great addition or, or element of a great pop record. And whether the Beatles copied that from, from those records or those records copied it from the Beatles. See, I don't remember that really happening much before that. Uh, so they loved Chuck Berry, the Beatles did. Uh, between 57 and 66, they played more songs written by Chuck Berry than had been written by any other artist. Uh, one caveat, they played a lot of Elvis tunes as well, but Elvis didn't write most of his music. He, you know, he sung them, uh, but not written by Elvis. The Berry songs they perform, sung and written by Berry. Lennon usually sang the Chuck Berry tunes when the Beatles played them, although this one is performed by George Harrison, this version here. But uh, yeah, they lowered the key of the song, slowed it down a bit. Uh, more of a sort of a boogie-woogie feel to it almost. Yep. Uh, now, you tell me this because you, you lived these times. I didn't. Uh, one bit of research that I, it said, this song was a bit of a middle finger to the older generation at the time. Um, 
the gist of the song was Beethoven and Tchaikovsky were yesterday. This is the sound of today. And Barry apparently wrote the song in response to his sister Lucy always using the family piano to play classical music when Barry wanted to play popular music. So that it was kind of a like a I guess the who did it later on. But, you know, my generation was was kind of that sort of thing for that generation. Do you recall getting that out of this song when you heard it? To be honest, I, I would have heard the Chuck Berry version first. Yeah. And note that wasn't the vibe I got. It was this was another along the lines of good golly Miss Molly and great balls of fire. And to me, it was just another up tempo uh, guitar or piano or kind of thing. It was just it didn't stand out to me necessarily. I love Chuck Berry, mm -hmm. love all those Chuck Berry tunes, but um, it wasn't it was not. A middle finger to anything for me. Harrison loved the song. He performed it on his tour of Japan up in uh, in December of 1991. So he he liked coming back to it. Now, many if not all of those drummers from the Chuck Berry era, so Johnny Johnson, Flu Collin, DJ Fontana, Charles Connor, those guys all had a jazz or R and B swing to their playing, and then that eventually changed. Many say it was you know John Bonham and Keith Moon, maybe. Jim Ginger Baker with Cream, you know, who that was the birth of rock and roll drumming. Now, have you ever had to play, again, that's not your style with Gordon Lightfoot, obviously, but with all the session work you've done, have you had to play that heavier style? And, and if so, how is it different than the sort of swing jazz bass style that a lot of guys from the Chuck Berry era played? Well, that's pretty much all I play is boom, boom, bang, bang. I have never been much of a swing guy or a jazz guy. And that is kind of uh, how I started working is because I was more of a boom, boom, bang, bang guy than, than the jazz guys. Uh, you know, the drummers that would have been playing with Guido Basso and the Boss Brass and that kind of a thing. Um, Different style, different playing. And for me, Ringo was kind of one of those transition players where he, it's funny, I watched the movie Count Me In, which is a great drummer movie, but they interview Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden. Yep. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it's a great documentary. Isn't it great? Yeah. And uh, his influence, he wanted to start playing the drums because of Joe Morello. And it's kind of like, What? Like, they couldn't be more different. But he he was inspired by Joe Morello's playing, and Joe Morello is definitely a, a swing, jazzy kind of a guy. And here's Nico McBrain playing Boom Boom Bang Bang, right? And when I say Boom Boom Bang Bang, uh, have I played on heavier stuff? Yeah, the, the Charlie album, uh, Lisa Del Bello. I did a Lisa Del Bello album. A little bit heavier with Copper Penny, maybe. And yeah, I can go there. I'm not a great rock drummer, for sure. Uh, there's much better guys at, at, at playing rock stuff, better chops, that kind of thing. But I can boom, boom, bang, bang with the best of them. Um, and when it, when it comes to jazzier stuff, not so much. But you hear that influence in Ringo's playing, where a lot of the stuff he does on the hi-hat, is it a shuffle? Is it straight eights? What is that? And it doesn't matter. It works. And that's, 
again, part of, I think part of the a genius and, and part of being in the right place at the right time, era-wise, mm -hmm. for the Beatles, for Ringo. I like the way you describe him as, as a, and there were probably a few, but as a transition guy, because he definitely wasn't, you know, he wasn't DJ Fontana and he wasn't those guys, but he certainly wasn't John Bonham or Keith Moon. Exactly. And exactly. So second cut on side two, back to uh, Lennon McCartney uh, for, uh, for this one, Hold Me Tight. It feels all right now, hold me tight. This, this is uh, one of those where you, where you hear the ending. It's like many times you have records that have retard endings where a song will gradually slow down. This, this retard ending is like six bars long. It's like forever. But they're so tight. They have played this so many times, I think, in the clubs. They've done it so many times that they are so tight doing this. And that's not easy. Like, retarded endings aren't that easy. Because, so describe what that is for someone who's non-musical. Yeah, it's, it's when a song gradually slows down toward the ending. And it's like if a song goes like that and then... And there's the ending. It gradually slows down. But it's usually a few beats, maybe a bar and a half. This thing is like six bars long. And they all play it so well together. Um, the other thing, here you go with back-to-back -back tracks, quarter note claps, which to me drive the song. It's just such a, it's a great element of a recording and it really drives the song. So uh, I love that and it's another example of Ringo's hi-hat wash. I'll call it the, the wash with the slightly open hi-hats and yeah, uh, another just a great track. And there's a, a thing that happens in the bridge with the drums where he comes off the hi-hat and plays, it's more toms and with a subtle accent on the one instead of two and four, now it's on the one. another part of his genius is making parts of, of the songs slightly different where he doesn't just play one part with one sound from top to bottom he'll go from closed hi-hat to slightly open hi-hat to no hi-hat to tom-toms to that kind of thing which which is a, a subtle way of really being making uh, making a record track really interesting. 
to your point earlier, the song had been around a while. They had played it. Uh, McCartney wrote it back in 1961. It was part of their stage act until 63. Right. They tried to record it for Please Please Me, their first album. Uh, they did 13 takes of it and it didn't really, it, it just didn't do it for them. So it was left off that album. Then seven months later, they come back to it again and they do another nine takes and then they finally uh, nail on this on this uh, on this final one uh, they very speeded it up a semitone to F major huh. okay. uh, for some reason and uh, yeah just a, a good solid workman light song second cut side two from there we go to song three on side two this was actually the first song they tackled when they started sessions for what was to become with the Beatles and it's you really got a hold on me I don't like you, but I love you. Seems that I'm always thinking of you. Oh, 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 you treat me badly. I love you madly. You've really got a hold on me. Yay, Smokey Robinson. Yeah. You bet. Smokey and the Miracles. Again, a very respectful version of what they had heard, I'm sure, on the Miracles record. Um, what stands out for me with Ringo is that it's slow shuffles or slow six eight things. They're kind of hard to hold down tempo-wise. And, and Ringo and the whole band do such a great job top to bottom of staying together and being so tight. It was... Uh, Another example of his hi-hat wash that he used so well, so often. Um, George Martin on piano. I love the piano part. I think the piano part is right on. Way to go, George. And again, Ringo's use of the hi-hat. Instead of when you want to get that wash sound, so many guys go to a ride cymbal. And so when you stop playing a ride cymbal, it rings. Unless you choke it or catch it. With, with your hand. And Ringo's use of the hi-hats, when it came to the, the these dead breaks and you really got a hold on me, there's no ring off. It's They're just dead stops, which you can do with a hi-hat because you do it with your foot. If you're going to choke a ride cymbal, imagine hitting a cymbal and then you stop hitting it. It's still ringing. So you have to actually use, you know, use one of your two hands which are probably busy doing other things at the time. This was part of, and he used this throughout this album, where the hi-hat wash, where they had a break, would just come to a dead stop. Uh, great drum fill in the middle eight. By, yeah, by yes, Ringo. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the other, you, you alluded to it, but um, up to the time, it was one of the most challenging songs they'd attempted. Six, eight time. Uh, and the notes I read, uh, it's, you know, sort of a, with its stop time structure, it was a test even for the crack guys, the session guys who played on the, the Motown original, uh, you know, like that kind of timing. Uh, and you would appreciate that being a musician. I'm not, but that can be a challenge, I guess, to try to play something like that. Uh, almost if it's slow. A track that's slow, and I know that from doing Anne Murray records, but when you're playing a slow track, it's so hard to keep it slow. The tendency is, with the energy 
is to want to make it go forward. And when something is in 6-8 and you play a 6-8 with a shuffle feel, that is really hard, I know from experience. It's hard to keep a slow shuffle down. And it isn't just Ringo. You can hear that he isn't fighting with anybody in the band. The whole band is so good at keeping it down, keeping the tempo where it should be. Can you listen to a record, or certainly I'm sure you could with a live band, and go, they're not singing from the same songbook? Uh, Time-wise, you mean? Yeah. Absolutely. And bar bands are the worst offenders. And sometimes, you know, you're, you're working in a bar and you get that you want to keep the energy up or make the energy, you know, you want a song maybe to go a little bit faster than it started that's part of the energy, part of the excitement. But when you're making records, unless you're Charlie Watts, if you're, you're making records, you don't really want them to speed up much. There are records, there are songs, and again, I know from experience where maybe the verse is a little bit slower than the chorus, but then when it goes verse, chorus, verse, the verse comes back, and then the chorus goes up just ever so little. And... I call that breathing. A song breathes. It goes down, goes up, goes down, goes up a little bit subtly in tempo. But this is this is such a great example of a bar band, which is what they were at the time, mm-hmm. having played so many sets, so many hours in clubs uh, and doing it so well. Took them a few takes to nail this one. It was a challenge. Uh, Seven plus a couple of edits. Uh, Unlike, and I wanted to get to this story, unlike one of Gordon Lightfoot's greatest songs that you play on, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, one of the greatest ballads ever written, uh, and it is a ballad. Uh, A true ballad tells a story, and this song tells a story. You've told me before that this song was a one-take wonder. Not only a one-take wonder, it's the first time we ever heard the song is when we played it. And that, I don't think I've ever heard of that ever in the music business. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead When the skies of November turn gloomy With a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more Than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed When the gales of November came early Rehearsing at Gord's house in his solarium. We were there for five days. And we had, I think, 13 or 14 songs that he was gonna use 11, I think maybe 10 or 11 of those on the album. Well, there was this extra thing at the end of each day of rehearsal where Gord started strumming on the 12 string. And we listened, the band. I mean, we were done for the day and Gord was rehearsing or playing this song. And one of the guys said, what's that? Gord said, a ship went down in the Great Lakes. I just read an article in Newsweek magazine. I'm writing a song about it, but it's not ready. It won't be on the album. Don't worry about it. Second day, same thing. Third day of rehearsal, same thing. 
Well, by this time, Terry Clements, lead guitarist, and Pee Wee Charles had heard Gord strum this enough, and they had talked, and they came up with these fantastic parts that they played together. And so by about the fourth day, Gord started strumming, and Pee Wee and Terry just started playing the parts, and Gord threw his hands up and went, no, don't worry about this. This won't be on the album. Let's worry about the songs that will be on the album. So anyway, Terry and Pee Wee had worked out these parts. I, I'm not sure. I don't think Rick had even played yet. Last day of rehearsal, exactly same thing. Pee Wee and Terry played the parts. Gord threw his hands up. No. Next week, we're booked at Eastern Sound for five days. We recorded three, I think four songs the first day of recording, which is a pretty productive day. And um, at the end of the day, Gord starts strumming. Pee Wee and Terry start playing. Gord throws his hands up. Day two, same things. Day three, same thing. Well, now we've recorded, I think, maybe a dozen of the songs uh, of the 13 or 14 Gord wanted to record. We come in on the Thursday morning, and we finish. The last one or two tunes that we had to record are done. And now Gord needs to mix it, decide what's going on the album. And Gord said, okay, guys, this was like Thursday around noon, something like that. Gord said, okay, boys, we're done. Kenny Friesen, the engineer, comes on the talk back and says, what about that shipwreck song? And Gord said, no, 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 no. It's not ready. It's not going on the album. Don't worry about it. And Kenny, God love him, said, we have the studio book, Gord. Why don't you just put it down on tape? And Gord very reluctantly said, all right, look, Pee Wee Terry, play, play what you're playing. I can't remember if he had any instructions for Rick, but Rick came up with this fantastic bass part. And I said, Gord, when do you want me to come in? And Gord said, because he was across the studio from me, I could see him, I was in the drum booth, he was right across from me, and he said, I'll give you a nod. Okay. So Gord starts strumming, Pee Wee and Terry do their thing, Rick does his great bass part, we get to whatever it is, the third verse, Gord gives me the big nod, I do a drum fill, come in, and we played to the end of the song. And Kenny said, that was great. And Gord says, yeah, you know, yeah, it sounded good, but don't worry about it. And, and then he, he paused for a minute and said, it was pretty good. Let's come in tomorrow and make it, let's do it right. Let, let's make a record tomorrow. Okay, so we came in on the Friday. We ran it down two or three times. It didn't have, it didn't have the magic. It, it didn't have the intensity of the thing we had done the day before. And you see, there, there is a certain intensity in that record because none of us knew. We didn't know the song. We were just playing by feel. And uh, I know myself when I hear the record, I know what I was thinking because there's some very short drum fills in the middle of that thing where I didn't know if he was going to start singing or what was going on. And I'm kind of like playing along and going, no, okay. And did like a, a hit on a tom or something. Anyway, the first time we ever played the song was that first take. And other than uh, the SOS signal thing that uh, Gene Martinick came in and played on a synthesizer, other than that one overdub, that's the record. A massive song. Oh, it, I mean, uh, I mean, I saw it on 
a YouTube thing with, I think it's getting up to close to 60 million hits on YouTube. The, the when you first come into the song, the doom, doom, Tom drums, Tom's? Absolutely. What made you, because he just said, he didn't give you, okay, I want you to, he just said, what made you come in with the Tom's with that now classic part? The wind and the wires made a tattletale sound And the wave broke over the railing uh, Feel. C- completely feel. I remember, you know, it's funny how you have certain just vivid memories of things and me sitting there thinking, and I didn't know how long the song was and now Gord's played like two verses and he hasn't given me a nod and I'm thinking... Maybe he doesn't want me to come in. Like, this thing has to be getting over soon, right? <laughs> Who knew it was going to be six and a half minutes long? But anyway, and he gives me the nod, uh, a good bar in up front. I just felt like a drum fill felt right for what I was hearing in the headphones, and the toms seemed like the right, would be the right sounds for that. And speaking of uh, air drums, I don't get this very often playing with Gord, but... Not so much anymore with the crowd getting older, but there were many times I'd look in the crowd and and see people who knew the fill, and there there were you know you, you'd see half a dozen people doing oh, yeah. it in unison with me, right? So yeah, yep. What a great great song, uh, and that's a great great story. Fantastic. Uh, we go from that to. Uh, Another Lennon McCartney song. This one famously covered by the Rolling Stones. It was a bit of a hit for them. I want to be your man. I want to be your lover, baby. I want to be your man. I want to be your lover, baby. I want to be your man. Love you like no other, baby. Like no other can. Love you like no other, baby. Like no other can. I want to be your man. Rock and roll, Ringo gets to sing. Um, great track, uh, and this is another example. It's it's a little bit frantic, it's a little bit on edge as far as you know, not being as tight as some of the other tracks. But it's kind of like it's on purpose, kind of like where you you do push a track tempo wise so that it is a little bit frantic. I think this is another example of uh, Norman Smith because there's tambourine, maracas, hand claps on two and four, and you just know that this was a genius bouncing or sinking of another machine or... But again, you know, it all sounds great, and way to go, Ringo. Uh, The story on the song, uh, according to John Lennon's recollections, this is from an interview we did in 1980, so not long before uh, he was killed. Uh, I Want to Be Your Man was a kind of lick Paul had. I want to be your lover, baby. I want to be your man. I think we finished it off for the Stones. Uh, We were taken down to meet the Stones at the club where they were playing in Richmond by Brian and some other guy, Brian Epstein. Uh, They wanted a song, and we went to see them to see what kind of stuff they did. Mick and Keith had heard that we had an unfinished song. Paul just had this bit, and we needed another verse or something. We sort of played it roughly to them and they said yeah okay that's our style so Paul and I just went off in the corner of the room and finished the song off while they were all still there talking 
we came back and that's how Mick and Keith got inspired to write because Jesus look at that they just went in the corner and they wrote it and they came back right in front of their eyes we did it that that's, is uh, a great story I'd never heard that yeah, that's John's recollection wow. yeah uh, sung by Ringo a little faster than the Stones version so you, you were right frantic uh, the one description I read of it said a heavy Bo Diddley beat I didn't pick up on that. That's funny. Yeah, uh, uh, Bo Diddley himself acknowledged this in the song London Stomp. Uh, that's on the album Hey Good Looking, and he sings, Hey Liverpool, we got the London Stomp over an I Want to Be Your Man background. Huh. So I didn't, I, I usually pick up on Bo Diddley beats because I like the Bo Diddley beat. I didn't hear that. I'll have to re listen. Yeah. We'll just take a quick pause here before we get to the last few cuts on the album. Uh, and I just want to take a quick moment to talk to any musicians or artists out there or perhaps people who represent or help those musicians or artists out with uh, promotion. I have this pitch for you. How would you like a custom podcast like this one in the style of The Walrus Was Paul to support your artists or your next album launch we'll go through your album new or old track by track just like we do on this show and then you can take that podcast and use it to promote your work exactly the way you would like it to be promoted you can use it on social channels or maybe even as a special bonus that you send out to your fans or your patrons if you go that route if that sounds interesting to you then get in touch with me via my website romicast.com and we'll take it from there I've already heard from a couple of artists, got a couple of things on the go, as they say. Uh, so if you'd like to talk, do send me a note. Again, go to the website, romicast.com, and get in touch there, and we'll take it from there. Uh, while you were there, musician or not, if you're just a fan of the podcast, uh, if you're interested in receiving the once-in-a-while, absolutely free, The Walrus Was Paul newsletter, uh, I'll usually preview upcoming episodes, maybe toss in a bit of trivia. Uh, you can receive that email blast by going to the website and registering. It is absolutely free. I don't send out a bunch of stuff. I, I won't snow you under with junk mail, and you can discontinue it at any time anyways. So you can go there and do that if it interests you. So let's get back into side two of With the Beatles, and up next, a cover version and one I absolutely love listening to. I just think it's got a great feel to it, the way it kind of bops along with some interesting percussion. It was the third song that the Beatles taped on the first day of sessions for the album, George Harrison gets the lead vocal. It's called Devil in Her Heart. She's got the devil. funny one of the things i read was they did this they did money and you really got a hold on me in the same session it was kind of like the motown session right yeah yeah right so okay yeah this one i had to do a little research on it uh the original record was by a group called the don a's uh from hamtramck michigan another black girl group yes yeah, absolutely correct um it had 
the Beatles kind of gave it the rumba feel a little bit more than the original. And, and the, of course, the maracas are, are so prominent and so great in that. Uh, that also features the, the lyric chances and romances, which, you know, again, did that inspire uh, writing by Lennon and McCartney in the future? Who knows? But the, the story I read was that George and Brian, Brian Epstein had, had the NEMS music store you're right? right yep yep north end music store yeah okay and harrison would come in after hours to try to find singles singles that had just come out right and george came up with this one and and thought it was great and kind of pulled it out and played it for the rest of the guys um the other interesting thing for me was having spent many, many years, in, especially with my old high school band, where you did copy record, you were trying to copy the records so you could play them. Well, trying to figure out the lyrics of, you know, especially there's no internet, there's no, you know, you don't have any of that. So you're trying to figure out what the hell did he say? What's he saying there? Does that even rhyme? What is that? And <laughs> I just read where the Beatles thought that it was no, no, nay, will she deceive? And the actual lyric was, no, not me, will me deceive. So, so you know, it kind of puts it, it kind of brings the Beatles back to your level of uh, just picturing them sitting around listening to this record, trying to go, what the hell are they saying? What the hell is that? What are those lyrics? And ended up, they ended up singing the wrong lyrics, apparently. On the record. Well, uh, there, and there, uh, dear listener, if, if you're uh, of a different uh, age demographic, but that, that's, you know, that's what you must have done. You mean, in your early days playing in cover bands and you're, you'd sit with the 45, play it a bit and try to transpose the lyrics. There was no jump on and do a quick search and no. you can have the lyrics for any song in the world. And you'd spend hours trying to figure that stuff out and... We were talking about this one day at a recording session and about, you know, how some people thought the Jimi Hendrix thing was, you know, excuse me while I kiss this guy. And Lou Pamonte, the great keyboard player, said that uh, he was in a band and they were they were trying to play Magic Carpet Ride by Steppenwolf. And his job was to get the lyrics. And he thought it was last night I held a lettuce lamp. <laughs> so I mean, but this kind of to me, it's like if I can just can you not picture the Beatles playing this forty-five over and over again, going, what is that lyric? What are they saying? So, well, I don't know much about Richard Drapkin, but he must have been uh, ever grateful that the Beatles put this on the album because this was a it was recorded by the Donnays as you mentioned not a hit in the US or UK it was a very obscure tune and the story you were talking about here is George Harrison's recollection Brian had a policy for his shop 
of buying at least one copy of every record that was released. If it sold, he'd order another one or five or whatever. Consequently, he had records that weren't hits in Britain, weren't even hits in America. Before going to a gig, we'd meet in the record store. After it had shut, and then we'd search the racks like ferrets and see what new ones were there. Devil in Her Heart and Barrett Strong's Money were records that we'd picked up and played in the shop and thought were interesting. Perfect. Exactly Perfect. to your story. And that brings it, again, it kind of brings the Beatles back to every bar band's level of listening to other people's records and figuring out, yeah, we should do a version of that. And again, trying to figure out what the hell are the lyrics. And and I, and I liked that they picked... They, there were a couple of songs and... Uh, an example escapes me. Maybe a little. Maybe it'll come to me. But uh, you know, they picked songs that were very some that were very obscure and people would never have heard of. Right. Uh, and as I said, I'm sure to the undying gratitude of of Richard Drapkin or Drapkin who <laughs> would have gotten a nice check after uh, after this Beatles album came out. And probably still is. Right? <laughs> probably still <laughs> is. Uh, we go to the uh, penultimate cut on the album, a John Lennon song, uh, Not a Second Time. You know you made me cry I see no use in wondering why Another example of Ringo and the hi-hat wash, this time with, with the rock and roll beat and kind of, a, kind of a British thing that I was noticing really recently was, was when you have one, that thing going on with the drums, the rock and roll beat, a lot of the British guys would really accent on the and, the second one of the, like this one. Like that. That seemed to be a British invasion kind of a thing. And also, there, Ringo and a few of the other guys had that, had that, is it a shuffle, is it straight eights kind of a thing. And when you were kind of in between, or if it was a shuffle, the second beat that I was talking about would come a little bit later than if it was straight eights, right? And that is definitely evident in this song where where that that beat and that really makes it swing it, it takes it out of the normal you know straight eights kind of a thing and and makes it swing a lot more which which i think is great and uh george martin on piano great great <laughs> piano part now you touched on something there that uh, i want to tap on your drumming expertise and ear for a second i've heard musicians say that ringo has his sort of sound is he, he comes in on the back end of the beat, and the reason that he does that is because he was a left-handed drummer playing a right-handed kit. Have you heard that as well, and does that, have, does that theory have legs to you? Oh, absolutely. It totally makes sense to me. And um, it's funny because when I started doing session work, we'll get back to Ringo, but just relating to myself... I actually started, I made my kick drum pedal harder to hit. 
and I put my drums a little bit further apart than most guys, so they would be, it'd be more difficult to play a busy part. And so I would have to come back to, even though that's my nature, to play a more simple part just to be able to play it. And I think with Ringo, I can't imagine being, a, being left-handed and playing a right-handed kit and then leading around your right-handed drums, your right-handed tom-toms, leading with your left hand, which I've seen him do. It's only natural to go from your, you know, from the left to the right to the right, leading with your right hand. And he would do some very different fills leading with his left hand. And I even saw him playing 16th notes, playing like that on the hi-hat and playing two and four on the snare with his left hand, which, you know, when you're playing right-footed kick and then you're playing, it just, it's really kind of counterintuitive. And, and I can definitely see how it, everything wouldn't come totally naturally to him with a right-handed drum kit being left-handed, and that might make him delay the beats a little bit, just enough to make it swing. The other thing I heard him talk about one time, and this is really getting into the, the weeds of, of, you know, drummer speak, uh, but uh, he, he did a thing which he says most guys didn't with his kick drum where he would hit it and then take his foot right off so there'd be some... He goes, what a lot of guys did is they hit the kick and then they held it there and yep. it deadened the drum. Right. Whereas he'd go, boom, and then pull it right back, lift his foot off the pedal, I guess, and that gave his kick a lot more oomph, he thought. That's uh, definitely a technique, and it's, it's hard to be able to do that both ways because naturally when you're, when you're playing the kick, it's just natural to, to play it one way, to either hit the drum and leave it there and dampen it or hit it and come back to be able to do both equally well is that's a little difficult and with Ringo stuff do you have you ever put the tea towel across on the snare drum or one of your drums I, I've had the same I think I don't tell anybody but I think I took a holiday in hand towel maybe I want to say 35 or 40 years ago, and it's been taped on my road snare drum ever since. So yes, it covers, it probably covers a third of the drum, which makes hitting the drum a little more difficult, but playing with two acoustic guitar players and a, a light playing bass player and light keyboards and playing a full set of drums, you need to uh, have as much dampening you know, so you're not just uh, tapping on the drums where you can actually hit them. And that's, that is definitely a technique to help you be able to strike the drum and not drown everybody else out. And, and what about in the studio? Did you ever do the, in the bass drum, you know, the, 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 the blanket in the bass drum thing that, that Ringo did to sort of dampen it? I've never done it any other way. Wow. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's in the road kit too, is... There's a blanket up against the head and uh, a weight on the front so the kick doesn't start walking away on you. There you go. If you're a drummer, there you go. There you go, kid. There's some great <laughs> tips for you right there from a master. I'll, I'll t well, thank you for that. Uh, one time, there was one time where I didn't do that, and this was something that I copied from Whitey Glenn from the Five Rogues, the Mandela, great 
Toronto band. Whitey went on and played with Alice Cooper and Bette Midler. And, but anyway, Whitey had a thing where he turned his kick drum up. So instead of the kick drum being perpendicular to the floor, it was now parallel to the floor. And he would have his, his beater so that you could see if you looked at him there was a space under the drum and the and you could see his kick pedal hitting the drum which visually you getting what i'm saying yeah 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 i'm just going there yeah so yeah. you hit that and and it would come up rather than be like this i'm sorry which camera can i play yeah. to yeah. <laughs> but anyway and i saw that and with strobe lights and with all it was the coolest thing and so i did that for a while in my high school band and of course it it was difficult to have uh, a blanket the same way that you would with it set up the other way. But uh, it also, if you used double head, if you had a top head on the kick, you could play on, uh, on the yes, opposite, yes. On the op which again was pretty cool. The only bad part was the engineering that went into keeping the uh, kick pedal properly on the drum. Yeah. It, it just never was quite right so i did it for a year or two and it was i thought it was really cool uh last cut on the album and we finish with a cover version uh and it's a great motown track money that's what i want there you go Ringo, again, being very respectful to the Funk Brothers, I would say, with the way he used the floor tom in the, in the verses. Um, straight eights, this is one that doesn't swing at all. This is straight eighth notes. Um, in and out with the hi-hat wash, going from floor tom, rhythm on the floor tom, rhythm to tight hi-hat, rhythm to the wash that he uses so much. Uh, George, again, nice piano part, again, very respectful. And something I didn't know, um, do you know who played drums on the, I'm going to call it the original Barrett Strong record? You know who the drummer was in the Funk Brothers on that record? Marvin Gaye. Now that is a that is a first all-star team center, great piece of trivia. Isn't that? And apparently the story goes... Motown had signed the singer Marvin Gaye. He had done an album, and it flopped. And because they had him under contract, it was kind of like, okay, everybody who's going to be a star, take one step forward. Marvin, not so fast. Marvin, why don't you go play drums for a while? And so he is the, the drummer on the Barrett Strong record. 
Uh, cover version of the Barry Gordy, uh, Janie Bradford Motown track. Uh, Barrett Strong, 1959 single release. Uh, I would respectfully say the Beatles version kind of destroys that version and is the definitive version of the track, I think, but I'm a big Beatles fan. Um, Beatles version, very raw and tight. Now, how about this? I, when you think about it, again, in uh, significance uh, bears itself in hindsight usually, but you have... Lennon and McCartney, two of the great rock and roll voices of the era, as it would turn out. And, you know, Lennon with that guttural, great lead vocal, and McCartney with that high register backing harmony. That would go on to be, I mean, such a thing. I mean, what an example of both their talents. The best things in life are free. But you can keep them for the best And please not give me more That's what I want That's what I want That's what I want That's what I want And everything you said, yeah, it does put the Barrett Strong record to shame in a way But they were at the same time very respectful of that record And Ringo stole pretty much stole Marvin Gaye's Tom Tom part with the accents on one and the accents on one on the uh, probably on the floor Tom in the verses very respectful of the original record well and he did the uh, one critique I read of it uh, you know the, the climactic final chorus Ringo just drives it along with the eight to the bar bass drum Uh, and, and that went on to be, I mean, a lot of people did that. Yes, sir. You got it right. And <laughs> gee, where do they get it from, huh? <laughs> uh, and George Martin's piano that you talked about, uh, they recorded this song on July 18th, and then George Martin, I guess they thought it needed some sparkle, and he recorded some piano overdubs in September while the Beatles were on holidays. Wow, so there he, you go. And he, that was after, this was one of the trio of the Motown uh, recording session that they the the three Motown sort of songs they did in one night, right? Uh, so we'll talk about the cover art just here for a moment. The, the, it's now an iconic image uh, taken by photographer Robert Freeman on the 22nd of August 1963 inside the Palace Court Hotel in Bournemouth. Uh, the group were doing a six-night residency at uh, the Galmont Cinema in that town. McCartney's recollection is this. Uh, it was a hotel. We had an hour in which he could take our picture. He pulled out four chairs and arranged us, arranged us in the hotel corridor. Uh, Freeman, the photographer, recalls it as being in the dining room, but neither here nor there. It was very unstudio-like, nonetheless. The corridor was rather dark. There was a window at the end, and by using this heavy source of natural light coming from the right, he got that photo. Got this very moody picture, which people think must have, uh, he had to work on forever and ever. Great technical detail, but it was an hour. He sat down, took a couple of rolls, and he had it. But Robert was very good. I liked his photography a lot. I thought he took some of the best pictures of the Beatles that way. That's McCartney's recollection. Iconic album cover, no question. I just heard an interview with George Martin where, the, where he talked about this album cover. And yeah, he loves it. He thinks it's a great album cover. He said, this is from George Martin, that the idea actually came from Stu Sutcliffe's girlfriend, who was a pretty famous rock 
photographer back in the day. I can't think of her Astrid name. Astrid Kircher. Thank you. Yeah. There you go. And she had, I think, taken pictures similar to this with the, with the half shadow and that kind of a thing. And that's kind of where the idea came from. But uh, the pictures themselves, Robert Freeman just... Great job, huh? Yeah, yeah. You can you can see some of those Astrid Kircher photos, and the Beatles love them. And they had said to Robert Freeman, they showed some of them to him, and said, "We want something like that." There you go. Uh, so that was definitely an inspiration. And then Freeman, he also shot the cover for Beatles for Sale, uh, Rubber Soul, and Help. Uh, now I thought that this might be fun to run by you, Barry. Uh, other albums. In the ch- or just before we leave the cover things, I don't know how much of a cover guy you are. Not uh, much. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, do you have a favorite Gordon Lightfoot album cover? I think Old Dan's Records. Just off the top of my head, that great close-up shot of him with a toothpick, and he's unshaven with a toothpick. Yeah. And, uh, I I just I think that's a great album cover. Yeah. Yeah. No, a nice one. Um, do you get involved with that at all? Not at all. Not a bit. <laughs> no, sir. I had my... Gord had uh, the four of us being Terry, Pee-wee, Rick, and myself. <laughs> sorry, I forgot about the drummer. Yeah. The f- Everybody always does, always right? Do. You know? There you go. Forgot the drummer. Uh, he had us come to his house and walk down the driveway uh, and on a snowy Toronto day and had a photographer take our pictures for the back of Dream Street Rose album. And so that picture, that's as close as I ever get to having anything to do with album covers. <laughs> I had my picture on the back of one. So other albums in the charts. I thought I'd just see if this, this you know, and I, and I like to do this again, contact, just give you an idea of how different the Beatles would have sounded. So in Canada, when this album was out and starting to go up the charts, The Singing Nun. Yep. Uh, in the Wind, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, Fun in Acapulco, Elvis. Uh, Four Strong Winds, Ian and Sylvia. Uh, and some of the big singles right around the time this album came out. Uh, it's All in the Game, Cliff Richard. Uh, Be True to Your School, Beach Boys, and Louie Louie by the Kingsman. Love it. Yeah, that's... And the number one record, according to the Billboard Hot 100 in 1963, Sugar Shack by Jimmy, Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs in Canada was released on the Barry label. And the Barry label was named after George Keane's young son at the time, George Keane being the Vice President, General Manager of Quality Records, was named after his son, Barry. Did you know George Keene? <laughs> my, my father is the one that got me kicking and screaming going to work in the warehouse at the age of 15. Was your, was your dad around long enough to see you become a very successful musician? Yes, he was. Must have been so proud. I'm glad you're... Your dad got to see you do that. Well, I started with Gordon 76, and my parents, um, I lost my dad right around 2000, so he had many years. He had been, they'd been, both my parents came to Massey Hall, and I'm very proud for me to see them in the crowd. And Pretty yeah. cool. Thank Pretty you. Pretty cool. No, hey, nothing like we all still, 
we all still want acceptance from our parents. You know, it's 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 uh, in there in all of us. Uh, in the UK, the chart's a little different, by the way. Uh, but just uh, the Beatles were competing against themselves when they released this album. Please, please me was the number one album. Uh, How do you like it, Jerry and the Pacemakers? Was big West Side Story soundtrack, uh, Sugar and Spice by The Searchers, Searchers, yeah. uh, In Dreams by Roy Orbison, and uh, Freddie and the Dreamers debut album. There you go. So that's what was going on in the UK. So, my friend, this has been uh, a great conversation. What do you? Uh, what are your kind of final takeaways from our conversation and from the album that we've been talking about for the last couple of hours? What do you sort of walk away with? Well, two things before I get on to the Beatles is what an honor it is to be here with you, honestly, that being such a Maple Leaf, Toronto Maple Leaf fan, and, and you being part of such an elite group of having you know watched and listened to hockey my whole life from Foster Hewitt to Bill Hewitt to Bob Cole to my good friend Joe Bowen, Paul Romanuk. Uh, I just, you know, you're the guys that would tell us at home watching TV not only what was happening but why it was happening. And, you know, in your case, you'd see Tyler Bozak and Phil Kessel not on the ice together and it was kind of like, is that a was that a shift change or or did uh, Randy Carlyle actually make is he changing up the lines or you you could see it happening but it took you to tell us that it was happening so an honor to be here doing this with you well the honor is mine but thank you it's very kind thank you uh, the Beatles man if it wasn't for the Beatles I wouldn't be sitting here no question they. The whole band, we talked about Ringo being a transition drummer. The Beatles were a transition pop group for me. And you just, you listed so many of those, you know, the hit records at that time. You just went from country, from Bobby Bear, to Al Martino, to Chuck Berry, to like, you know, um, Paul and Paula. Like the hit records at the time were sort of all over the map. And these guys were pretty much leading the leading edge, not only in the way they looked and, and how great they were, but just in being such a tight band and singing and writing their own songs for the most part. Uh, it was such a different thing. Mm -hmm. And for me to have been at the, uh, you know, at the right age, being 14 and 15 years old when Beatlemania really started happening uh, such a such a privilege it was so lucky for me to be at that age when this was happening and they were so impactful on me getting interested again after failing so miserably at the guitar getting <laughs> interested again in maybe playing an instrument being part of a group that whole thing well and this album this was uh this was the first Beatles album. It wasn't the first Beatles album, but for us people living in Canada, this was the first Beatles album. And just, you know, so good. And thank you for asking me to do this. And I'm so glad I picked this record because I had a chance to do a little research, to really listen to it, to dissect it. 
and to really, you know, sometimes you dissect things and they get a little bit worse when you start uncovering. You start and you start seeing some warts here and there. And this just got nothing but better for me as far as the band, the recording, Ringo's drumming, uh, the story behind some of the songs. Just uh, no great memories, and uh, and to me this is. This is the reason I picked this album. So many of the great recordings that they've done over the years are great songs, but this was so impactful for me. You were the perfect guy to do this album. So Perfect. Barry, thank you so much. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you. I am always interested to know what you think, dear listener. What are your thoughts on our thoughts regarding With the Beatles? Uh, I hope maybe our discussion sends you to the direction of giving it a listen or giving it uh, a listen again if it's been a few years. I know I tend to, to, when I listen to Beatles albums, it's kind of from the middle period and the later period. I don't always listen to a lot of the early ones, so it was sort of fun to go back and, and put on With the Beatles and just listen to what a great rock and roll band they were. Just a fantastic four-piece uh, back in the early days. Uh, you can join the conversation several ways. Uh, you can go to the episode page for this podcast on my website, romicast.com. Uh, there is an individual page for each podcast episode, and at the bottom of that page, there's a comment section. So you can just chime in right there. That's maybe the easiest way. We can also interact on Twitter or Instagram, Romanuk Paul is the handle on both and of course there's always facebook you just do a search on facebook for the walrus was paul podcast page and you can find me there and leave a comment join us next time on the walrus was paul i will be speaking with a couple of great music people so creative uh, a couple of music people who in fact are a couple uh, mark gain and martha johnson of martha and the muffins I'll be talking to them about the Beatles' groundbreaking 1966 album, Revolver. You know, when I say, I, I think, you know, deep listening is a, is a fairly recent term, but I was deep listening <laughs> to Revolver even before I knew what deep listening was, and I had no idea how it was going to affect everything that I brought to Martha and Muffins, and it continues to do so. I thought it was really interesting to, to, to discuss the Beatles with our music and to draw some some uh, similarities in style and, and how we write, write and things like that. And I think when you, the Beatles was such an influence on me as a, as a young woman, young young performer, young songwriter that it's very very interesting to see it be from that from that angle. That's Martha Johnson and Mark Gain of Martha and the Muffins talking about Revolver. You're really going to enjoy that. And that is next time on The Walrus Was Paul. Until then, you take care. One, two, three, four. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? I play the drums, and I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar.